Hello, it is 14th of July 2019 and this is episode 109 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? It's been pretty decent. I finally managed to get hold of both the Age of Resistance comics that have been released so far. So that's the issues focusing on Finn and Phasma. Am I right Mm. to think you still haven't read those? I haven't. um, I want to, but this this sounds really silly, but I get intimidated by comic book stores. Oh, no, that's fine. It makes sense. The one I go to in London is a very intense place. Obviously, that's a special scenario. It's like a big store in a capital city and there's hordes of people. As an environment, it's quite a specific type of place and it can, yeah, be a bit intimidating. Mm. I wish you could just, like, buy them. I mean, I think eventually they will sell, like, a whole, like, book version of them once the whole series is done. Yeah, I've already seen that. They're going to do it as um, Heroes and Villains. Oh, so, right, okay. two volumes. Yeah, I might buy those. Because um, I want to read them, and I've like read the synopsis, at least, of the Finn one. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, they sound like interesting stories, but just haven't been able to get out and get them. Yeah, no, I enjoyed both of them. Like, it is amazing, though, as someone who really doesn't read many um, comic books, to read them and think, oh my god, these stories are so short. Like, you pay, <laughs> like, three quid or whatever, but you're literally done in five minutes reading it. That's another thing. Like, I don't know how people buy so many every week and it just seems like a a, a black hole to get sucked into and <laughs> spend a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely not something I could do as a regular habit. Like, I could never buy the regular Star Wars comic for that reason. Mm. Like, anthologies are a different thing because, yeah, then you have something more substantial to get your teeth into, but... Yeah, it's not really my format, but I did appreciate them for what they were. And the art was fantastic, which was a big relief because the art for the Marvel adaptations of The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi was not good, <laughs> basically. And the art in for these comics just blows that away completely. It's wonderful, particularly okay. for the Phasma comic. It's just so well done. There's yeah. like lots of battle scenes and they look amazing. I really don't think the Marvel adaptations are representative of most star wars comics because a lot like the vader ones they look amazing Mm. um so yeah it's good to branch out exactly and i hear that you have watched a certain film again yeah i watched the last jedi it was funny because i i pretty much did it right after we recorded last week's show and i was like oh i haven't seen a star wars movie in ages i haven't really been into them or at least like you know because there's so much other stuff to watch of course i've been finishing up a bunch of tv series as well i just finished season one and two of killing eve and i highly recommend that to people who haven't kind of jumped on that train already although i know i'm already late to the party so that's probably old news Uh, but yeah it's really great okay Um, awesome i need to get to that but yeah i watched the last jedi again and enjoyed it again um i guess it's just good to do that like as we're kind of going through the series of spotlight episodes that we are to kind of remind ourselves where we are in the journey mm-hmm. and as we get like slowly get more news about the rise of skywalker you can kind of go back and think oh i wonder if they're going to pick up on that or what things are they going to yeah what's what's going to be picked up and what's going to be kind of left um yes. obviously they can't they can't do everything 
Yeah, no, exactly. I feel like I really need to go back and re-familiarise myself with the films again. This has been months and months since I last watched them. I'm pretty sure I must have watched them at some point this year, but if I did, it was definitely early this year. So, yeah, I need to get to it. Mm, Because you did kind of a prequel run before Celebration, right? Or at least The Phantom Menace. Yeah, that's right. I saw The Phantom Menace because it was on the plane. (laughs) And then I watched Attack of the Clones up until Padme and Anakin leave Tatooine because that's the point where I really stop enjoying that film. Oh. (laughs) Sorry, I don't mean to sound super harsh about it, but yeah. I I just don't like big battle scenes, basically, so the stuff in the arena doesn't do much for me. Um, But yeah, like there's big chunks of Attack of the Clones I enjoy, um, and I chose to focus on those. I love the ending of that film. The yes. Wedding. No, that's so, so true. I should have just skipped to the wedding. To be <laughs> the outfits. Padme's wedding dress. It's such an amazing dress. It's ridiculous. It, it helps that Natalie Portman's wearing it because well, she yeah. looks fabulous and everything, but it's still a gorgeous dress. It is. They like hand sewed all of those pearls onto that dress. It looks so beautiful. Oh, that's amazing. You went to the costume exhibit, didn't you? Yeah, that's one of the outfits that really stuck out to me. Oh, I bet. Seeing that in person, it must really make you appreciate the craftsmanship. Yeah, the level of detail is just amazing. And she had so many. <laughs> <laughs> I do kind of miss all of that in the sequels, gotta say. Yeah. Why can't Ray have a big wardrobe too? <laughs> or just one pretty dress, really. That's all we want. Yeah, we know. almost got it with uh, Rose and Finn on Canto Bite, but didn't quite happen. <sighs> Damn JJ and his back to the salt of the earth aesthetic and simplicity. We did get Holdo and Leia looking pretty glam. Yeah, that's true. Not to the same level. Yeah, we can hold out hope for something in the rise of skywalker they're definitely not counting on it let's put it that way yeah i mean it's a different era isn't it that's kind of the whole point that they're going for prequels is like the golden age before everything turns to crap (laughs) yeah exactly the height of civilization Mm. to prime people before we go into the news i'll just mention what we're going to do for our spotlight because we are going to build off the discussion that we've had over the past two episodes, which were on the masculine and the feminine, respectively. And we're basically going to use that as a foundation to speculate about what might happen in The Rise of Skywalker. So that is to come later in the programme. So very exciting. Um, But yeah, before that, we have some news to get to. So, would you like to explain what new piece of merchandise has been revealed, Kirsty? Sure, it's a Sith Trooper. Woo! Uh, yeah, we'd had rumours about a new red Stormtrooper. Um, no word yet on whether he's been officially inspired by Cardinal or not. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> In universe, that is. <laughs> Probably not, since he's a massive traitor. But, yeah. <laughs> um, Yeah, at San Diego Comic-Con, Lucasfilm will celebrate the history of Stormtrooper design and the future. Fans attending the mega pop culture event will be treated to a new exhibit of trooper armor from across the saga, including a first look at the next evolution in Imperial slash First Order soldiers, the Sith Trooper from the upcoming Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. It's a modern and more menacing look befitting its namesake. And it really is, because it's a Stormtrooper, but they've added quite a few 
different details to it haven't they yeah no they have there's um lots of little adjustments like the eyes are narrower i've heard some people say that the black line sort of resembling the mouth area is mm. kind of been changed to resemble a scowl more yeah um which is really cool um and yeah there's just lots of little nuance changes i'm not like really well attuned to costumes for stormtroopers and things like that but i'm sure that all the people in the 501st they see this and they're like zoning in on all these little amends and stuff it's kind of like when they brought out the death troopers for rogue one yeah um it's also got a lot of ridging on the costume the armor uh, which is really interesting because it lends it almost like an animalistic quality yeah very different from the regular first order trooper Thing. And I know we got the Executioner Troopers, is that what they were called, for The Last Jedi? Um, yes, that's right. Who ended up playing a very small part, and in a significant scene, of course, but given like how much they were merchandised beforehand, it, that's the, something like, to always keep in mind with Star Wars stuff, right? Like, something can have a very exciting aesthetic, but in terms of, like, are these going to be major players or characters? <laughs> yeah. We'll see. Exactly, um, that's quite a because, different thing. Yeah, we're going to have the Knights of Ren 2, so... I guess it's going to fuel a lot of speculation, because the name is so intriguing. Exactly. I must say that, out of all of this, the thing that struck me the most was that name, Sif Trooper, because, obviously, that's significant, because we have been told repeatedly that Snoke, who's admittedly now now out of the equation, and Kylo are not Sif, that was a point that J.J. Abrams himself made back when The Force Awakens was first being talked about. And yeah, so now we apparently have a Sith presence back again. And of course, it's got the rumour mill flying into overdrive and people speculating like crazy, as I'm sure they wanted with this reveal, because that's a very charged decision to give these troopers that name. Uh, but yeah, what are you thinking, Kirsty, in terms of the allegiances of these guys? Well, combined with the Palpatine reveal in the teaser, I think that the Rise of Skywalker is going to have a lot more kind of exposition. And not exposition in a bad way. I think it will be relevant to the story. Um, stuff that kind of links how the First Order evolved out of the Empire more clearly yeah. than the previous movies have. And the books have kind of hinted at this for a while. Um I don't want to spoil too much, but the Aftermath trilogy, especially Empire's End, goes into this quite a bit because the character of Gallius Rax, who Palpatine found on Jakku as a young boy and kind of took under his wing, he like explicitly carries out what um, Palpatine's last wishes were, that um, he has to kind of destroy the Empire from the inside, basically. Um, and that's his contingency so that it can be taken to the unknown regions and kind of rebuilt which of course is exactly what happened. Yeah. I kind of pulled some quotes from Empire's End and The Last Jedi's novelization um, that kind of fit into that. Shall I read those out? Yeah, please do. So this is Sidious talking to Gallius Rex in Empire's End. He says, my boy, my precious boy, (laughs) are you ready to be the outcast? Are you prepared to become the contingency should it come to that? There will be others you must call to your side. And throughout that book, um, Rax is acting out these plans in various ways. Um, and Ray Sloan, the, the other major 
imperial character kind of gets wise to this. She doesn't quite know what he's up to, but she starts to like put things together and they have this really weird, intriguing dynamic between them. And I don't want to say how it ends because I feel like people should go back and actually read that now, whether it like goes exactly the way Palpatine wants or not. We know that's what happens, right? Because the First Order does come out of the Unknown Regions. Yes. I think this whole situation with the Unknown Regions and the Empire having to rebuild, I think all of this points to factionalism, right? basically. And I think whatever happened to the remnants of the Empire in the Unknown Regions is completely unknown and completely mysterious to us for a very good reason. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably because there were lots of splits and divisions occurring within that time. And one division, like one fragment of the remnants, went on to become the First Order. But I think there were other fragments and other remnants that were doing quite a different thing. And in particular, there were people and individuals that were continuing to preserve Palpatine's vision for what was to happen in the event of his death and basically overseeing the execution of this contingency plan that he had and right now I would bet money on these new troopers being part of that contingency Mm -hmm. and being a key element of how Palpatine means to enact his return into galactic affairs. Yeah. I think what's really interesting as well is that we have this coinciding with the introduction of that new character played by Richard E. Grant. Price. Yes. No, so that's such a good what point. kind of relationship does he have with Hux? Mm. Um, did he come from the Unknown Regions as well? And yeah, is there this whole area of the First Order that people somehow aren't aware of or are just kind of acting on their own terms? Um because I think in the Last Jedi novelization, I don't have that as part of the quote here, but I know there's a part where Snoke talks through all the potential leaders that the First Order could have had and how he seemed very unlikely to people. Mm. So, yeah, it's like, well, did, was someone else kind of in the background somehow kind of trying un- to undermine Snoke? And this would have been before Kylo even came along, right? Because yeah. We know that he only fell in the last six years. Yeah. I think that the generational aspect will be really important in that way because a lot of these like dramas and leadership challenges, they would have happened when Hux was a young child and would not have known what was happening. Mm-hmm. And Ben Solo was just off in a completely different area of the galaxy and had nothing to do with it. So I think we're going to see like Hux be surprised by things. For example, mm-hmm. to be honest, there's going to have been machinations going on in the background that he had no idea about. Yeah. And I'm going to kind of guess that Snoke was more on the Ben Solo slash Luke Skywalker side of things at that point as well. Mm. And kind of came in relatively recently, maybe. Yeah. Um, I mean, it could go in either way, but that's kind of the vibe you get. Um, got this longer passage here from it's kind of Snoke's inner monologue before all the throne room sequence stuff happens, I think. Mm-hmm. In the last Jedi novelization, um, he says, or thinks, <laughs> Palpatine had engineered the contingency to simultaneously destroy his empire and ensure its rebirth, ruthlessly winnowing its ranks and rebuilding them with who and what survived. The rebuilding was to take place in the unknown regions, secretly explored by imperial scouts and seeded with shipyards, laboratories, and storehouses, an enormously expensive effort that had taken decades and been kept hidden from all but the elect. 
but the Imperial refugees' military preparations had been insufficient bulwarks against the terrors of the unknown regions. Grasping in the dark among strange stars, they had come perilously close to destruction, and it had not been military might that saved them. It had been knowledge, Snoke's knowledge, which ironically led back to Palpatine and his secrets. Palpatine's true identity as Darth Sidious, heir to the Sith, had been an even greater secret than the contingency, and the Empire's explorations into the unknown regions had served both aspects of its ruler. For Sidious knew that the galaxy's knowledge of the Force had come from those long-abandoned, half-legendary star systems, and that great truths awaited rediscovery among them. Truths that Snoke had learned, and made to serve his own ends. One obstacle had stood in his way, Skywalker, who had been wise enough not to rebuild the Jedi Order, dismissing it as the sclerotic, self-perpetuating, debating society it had become in its death rows. Instead, the last Jedi had sought to understand the origins of the faith, and the larger truths behind it. Like his father, Skywalker had been a favoured instrument of the will of the cosmic force. That made it essential to watch him, and once Skywalker endangered Snoke's design, it had become essential to act. And so, Snoke had drawn upon his vast store of knowledge, parceling it out to confuse Skywalker's path, ensnare his family, and harness Ben Solo's powers to ensure both Skywalker's destruction and Snoke's triumph. Isn't that so good? That's really good. <laughs> it's like, this sounds really intriguing, and they're obviously setting things up, but to what end? This yeah. idea of them being like all these dangers in the unknown regions, and it's clearly stuff that relates to the Force. It's not just like, oh, there's an enemy there waiting to attack them. It's like, this is like really mysterious cosmic shit. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fascinating. And it really makes me think, like, if they do this fabled animated series after the events of Return of the Jedi I'd really want to see it as like parallel stories you know I'd Mm. want to see the story of what's going on with Luke and what he's trying to rebuild as well as what Han and Leia are doing but alongside that I'd like to see what's going on in the unknown regions of the Imperial Remnant because yeah I think you'd need both sides of it because it all sounds so interesting yeah there's a really important story here about Luke right Mm, 100%. That Snoke picked him out, and then because of that, Ben Solo kind of fell into being the weapon that would be turned. Yeah. And yeah, just so much about Palpatine. And of course, reminding us that most of the galaxy did not know, even afterwards, that he'd been a Sith. Yeah. It looks like he's changed tack on that now. No, he's like, all <laughs> Sith troopers. It's like, here I am, Sith return. <laughs> Amazing stuff. We love the Sith. Aren't they great? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I just want to know, like, are these troopers guarding Palpatine? Mm. Are they even, like, physically in the same place as any other First Order people? Or is it all about Palps for them? Yeah, like, I think you were right on the money earlier when you mentioned General Pride and how right. he might tie into these guys. My theory slash headcanon is that Pride is going to come in as a bit of an unknown quantity, clearly with an Imperial background, but a relatively obscure one, but he's clearly experienced and he rises through the ranks quickly. Mm. And then it becomes apparent that he's serving his own agenda and he means to like usurp like Hux and Kylo and that whole leadership system that they, they have going on and basically take over the bulk of the First Order operation to draw it into the service of Palpatine and I think those Sith troopers would be a big part of that 
because I don't think it would be a peaceful takeover <laughs> by any means. Right. Because that kind of plays into earlier parts of the novelization. Like, was it Captain Kennedy and um, PV, who both had like inner thoughts directed mostly at Hux about how useless he was and how much better things were yeah. with the Empire. Um, and that was their experience. They They came from that. Yeah. So the seeds are kind of planted there for people like Hux to be put in their place by elders, basically. Yeah, exactly. So it's not like it would be unpopular because someone like Hux has not done himself any favours <laughs> with how he's behaved. He's clearly not very popular and not very trusted. So, yeah, I think things are looking quite bad for him, to be honest. And I think he'll be overthrown by his own leadership. And overthrown is if things go great for him, really, because death might be on the cards i'm afraid so yeah oh no <laughs> so sad but yeah the real question mark among all of this is whatever will happen to kylo because i do think he's going to be quite separate in a way from all the political squabbling and infighting among like the first order and the different levels of ranks and the older generals disliking what Hux is doing and vice versa and everything mm. so I think Kylo's going to be somewhat removed from that but yeah like I don't see these troopers being allied with Kylo basically so I have no. seen that as a line of speculation yeah but what's your take on that Kirsty? Well I think they've been quite clear both just talking about the characters like you said earlier of Snoke and Kylo not being Sith from the beginning but also it's explicitly rejected by Kylo and in his big grand speech to Rey in the throne room aftermath um, that he wants to get rid of the Jedi and the Sith and he wants to forge something new. Yeah. So then why would he have these <laughs> troopers that he called Sith troopers? Yeah, it would definitely be two steps back. Yeah, with his like reforged helmet, although we still don't have all the info there as to how exactly that comes about with the red maybe there's like a color scheme thing going on but <laughs> the name is enough to kind of throw that into doubt yeah exactly and there's the whole you know all these comments from jj abrams about how it's about this generation facing the greatest evil it's the idea that there's something more evil out there than kylo so yeah exactly <laughs> he might be he might have decided that he was the leader of the first order for now but I don't think he's really going to be in terms of actually having a handle on the situation or even being aware of stuff going on until it's too late. Yeah, it's true. I think the First Order is going to become so fragmented and fractured, it's going to be really interesting. So you also have the factor of the Knights of Ren, who we know are going to be in this movie. And it's going to be a question of, well, when they see this like uber-committed, badass Darksider who is Palpatine and who has all these resources at his disposal is he suddenly going to become a more attractive proposition as a leader than Kylo Ren it's hard to tell because we really don't know enough about the Knights of Ren and their loyalty to Kylo or whether they're even practicing dark side users maybe some of them are and some of them aren't yeah just so much mystery yeah no it's very exciting like I never thought I would get this intrigued and interested by a new trooper design. But mm. yeah, that name sold me. I'm yeah. definitely interested in these guys. So Yeah, it's, it's totally natural for everyone to speculate. But I have seen some people being quite rude to, of course, because it's the Star Wars fandom um, and the internet. People like atting Matt Martin from the story group on Twitter and being like, well, this is rubbish. 
and just goes to show how ridiculous this trilogy is because Kylo isn't a Sith and it's like <laughs> he was like maybe the movie will provide more context <laughs> and explain that <laughs> oh man these poor poor people I know it's like obviously they're going to release things to get people speculating but it doesn't mean that we're going to have the answers we're just going to have fun thinking about it in the meantime yeah exactly as long as, long as you don't become too committed to a vision of what it will slash should be it's all in good fun so yeah, yeah people just need to chill out I just thought it was interesting that people were taking this as proof of I guess if you already think that this this sequel trilogy is a mess then you're going to use stuff like this to play into your bias but it really tells us very little at the moment. <laughs> it just has us asking questions. Exactly. It's fun speculation fodder, but not much more. But yeah. They already have a whole host of merchandise for the Sith Troopers. So. <laughs> yeah, that was funny to me. I was surprised they didn't have like um, Sith Trooper bog roll or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah, they have like backpacks and stuff with this new black diamond kind of Sith logo on it. Mm. Um, well, I, actually, I don't know if it's new. I've seen various threads on Twitter like, oh, it looks like this from the Mortis arc or it looks like this from... Yeah, I don't know how new it is, but um, I just thought that was interesting because it kind of plays into the previous code name that we had for what they now call Trixie. Yeah, no, it's true. They've got a neat little symbol and company in them. And yeah, I'm sure more will become illuminated in due course. So yeah, it's very exciting. Um, cool. Yep. Then we have some more information on the presence that Lucasfilm will have at D23. Would you like to read out the first bit of this, Kirsty? Uh, sure. So I think they're going to have a pretty similar display of the troopers as to what they're going to have this week at Comic-Con. It sounds mm -hmm. like anyway. Um, for the first time ever at D23, Lucasfilm will host its own pavilion on the show floor featuring an impressive display showcasing the evolution of Star Wars Stormtroopers. The exhibit will include several of the actual costumes used on screen throughout the iconic movie series. From the classic Stormtrooper to the new design featured in the upcoming Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, this stunning display is a rare opportunity to examine these production costumes up close instead of in a galaxy far, far away. There will also be an opportunity for young Padawans to fill the force with Star Wars Galaxy of Adventures video shorts and interactive activities for kids. Aww. Um, as if that wasn't exciting enough, on Friday, August 23rd, at 3.30 in Hall D23, guests will get a sneak peek at Jon Favreau's action-packed bounty hunter series, The Mandalorian. The Mandalorian, played by Pedro Pascal, is a bounty hunter who travels the outer reaches of the lawless galaxy, surviving as a mercenary for hire. Dave Filoni, along with special guests, will join Favreau for the onstage presentation. I hope this doesn't mean that it's going to be exclusive to guests and that they don't release it again. <sighs> I think that would be a mistake at this point, to be yeah. honest. Like me coming from my like position of complete wisdom in these things. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, which I don't have. Um, but yeah, it just seems a bit silly. So we're getting quite close now to when Disney Plus and The Mandalorian are actually going to launch. Mm -hmm. And they really need to start building hype for these things. Like I know that people are excited about them within the fandom, but I don't think they're very well known beyond the hardcore Star Wars fandom, to be honest. Probably a bit more now because Jon Favreau has been promoting The Lion King and talking about The Mandalorian too. Yes. But still, yeah, very little. Yeah. So I think they really need to work on that. So I'd be surprised if they didn't release anything. But yeah, 
we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I hope they give us something. Even if they just give us what they gave people at Celebration, it's like... Because otherwise, people are just kind of watching the bootleg copies floating around on the internet. Uh, this is not the best first impression. Yeah. I, I kind of understand not releasing footage shown at these conventions if it's unfinished. So if it's like work in progress and the CGI is not done and stuff like that because yeah it looks lame and you don't want to create a bad impression in people's minds of surely they have enough show finished now like. for a trailer yeah well that's the things having seen the bootleg stuff they showed it celebration i think that was releasable really especially the mm. short trailer they showed so i see no excuse basically i think it's like come on guys stop promoting it give us a bone for us a bone <laughs> Um, yeah, and then the other thing to mention is that there's also going to be a more general live action panel. So that's going to be on Saturday, August 24th. And I've just got a little blurb on the D23 Expo website. The Walt Disney Studios will present a behind the scenes look at its blockbuster collection of upcoming films on Saturday, August 24th at 10am. Fans will see what's on the drawing board for the acclaimed filmmakers at Walt Disney Animation Studios and Pixar Animation Studios and get a peek at the exciting slate of live-action projects from Disney to Marvel Studios to Star Wars. As always, attendees will be treated to exclusive footage, special guest appearances and more. So I think whatever we get on The Rise of Skywalker, it's going to come at that panel, basically. Mm, Exciting. Yeah, and I'd expect the usual suspects from the cast to show up. So I imagine they'd have Daisy, John, probably Oscar, but probably depends what he's doing. And yeah, hopefully Kelly and Naomi and yeah, maybe they'll introduce some new people as well. Like Kerry Russell hasn't done any press yet. So Mm -hmm. it might be nice to introduce someone like that there. Yeah, that'd be exciting. Yeah. So I'm really hoping we get another behind the scenes reel. Oh, me too. That was so good last time. (laughs) Yeah, for D23 in the lead up to The Last Jedi, we got an awesome behind the scenes reel for The Last Jedi. And we can only hope for something that good. Mm -hmm. So yeah, doing the like screen cap by screen cap breakdowns of those things. (laughs) Much more fun than it has any right to be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just very, very intriguing to see stuff from behind the scenes because... They can do it in a way that it's like, I'm sure they mislead on all sorts of things, but then also give you hints as to other things. And it's very different from receiving a trailer, but it's just as exciting. And we still don't have an official poster. So maybe one of those? No, so that would be a really cool thing. And that's the sort of freebie they could give out, you know, at Mm. the event to attendees. Um, because yeah I was a bit disappointed at Celebration they didn't hand out any posters for the movie I was like oh come on (laughs) we're in a streaming stage give us something tangible (laughs) I don't even particularly care about owning it it's just it would be cool to see it you know oh yeah Um, no definitely yeah gives you kind of like a laser focus on what they want you to think of as like the themes or the symbolism of the movie so yeah Exactly. So that will be something fun to look forward to coming up. Um, Yeah, then the next thing that we have is a little bit of theme park news because we finally have opening dates for Rise of the Resistance. Would you like to read out this report from the Disney Parks blog, Kirsty? 
Sure, this was quite surprising, actually. I don't know about you, but... Mm -hmm. um, It says, we've got some exciting news to share today with the galaxy. We're opening Star Wars Rise of the Resistance December 5th at Walt Disney World Resorts. That's the one in Florida. If this date sounds familiar, many of our fans will recognise it as Walt Disney's birthday. Blah, blah, blah. Um, When it opens, Star Wars Rise of the Resistance will blur the lines between fantasy and reality and put guests in the middle of a climactic battle between the First Order and the Resistance. Guests will be recruited to join Rey and General Organa at a secret base. Along the way, they will be captured by a First Order Star Destroyer. With the help of some of the heroes of the Resistance, they break out and must escape the Star Destroyer, protect the secret base, and stay one step ahead of Kylo Ren. As soon as work is completed at Walt Disney World, Imagineers will head back to California to complete their mission at Disneyland Resort, where Star Wars Rise of the Resistance will open on Friday, January 17th. Yeah. Which is very different from what we'd first heard, because I think it was meant to be August. Yeah. No, I was really surprised by how late this was. And a teensy bit disappointed, because I was hoping to get like all the cool details about what the ride actually entails. And for that to be some of the food to tide us over in the dry season. But that's definitely not going to happen now. <laughs> it's going to hit yeah. us when there's going to be all sorts of crap going down, basically. <laughs> and yeah, like I'm still really excited for it. It sounds like an amazing ride. And this is clearly going to be the absolute highlight of Galaxy's Edge from everything that's said in terms of complexity and the storytelling involved. It just seems awesome. Um, so yeah, I- I'm really excited for other people to go there. <laughs> I am too. Um, and like you, I'd hope that we would hear more about it early on. But I think because it's so state of the art, it's uh, run into a few problems maybe. Mm, um, yeah, I've seen those rumours. Yeah. I don't know the details. I don't know how this stuff works. But if they'd said originally they wanted it to open much earlier and now it's not, I don't think it's just a case of wanting co- to coincide it with the movie's release because mm. that will be costing them money. Yeah. Um, but also maybe it's a kind of way to get people to take multiple trips to the park. Or, I don't know. <laughs> the ultimate cynical move, but it makes a lot of sense <laughs> because, yeah, on that money, Disney, milk it for all it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> you clearly need more. Um, yeah, no, but it seems awesome. And... Yeah, I've heard that this is going to have an animatronic Kylo Ren. And I think that's been confirmed. It's not a rumor. Mm -hmm. And yeah, damn, that'd be so cool. Although I'm sure it's not going to be like a maskless Kylo Ren. Because that would be truly Uncanny Valley, an animatronic. Oh, no, I don't think it is. Adam Driver, can you imagine? I think it's masked. Um... (laughs) But yeah, interesting, because I feel like this is going to coincide with the story to some degree. Because that's kind of the... The thing about Galaxy's Edge, right, it is canon. It's meant to be that kind of straddling between episode eight and nine. Yeah. So meeting Rey and General Organa at the secret base presumably feeds into the beginning of the Rise of Skywalker in some way. Yeah, maybe it will be the base that they're at at the beginning of the Rise of Skywalker. That would be a nice Mm. bit of continuity. Yeah. As long as the base isn't discovered in the course of the Rise of the Resistance ride, in which case, yeah, they definitely shouldn't still be there. Yeah. So I guess we'll hear about that from people who are lucky to go to the Walt Disney World Resort before the movie, but California will have to wait. Yeah, sad times. Right, then the next news story is that Jon Favreau has said that he's already started in season two of The Mandalorian, And this is on the Jimmy Kimmel show. Would you like to read out the quote from that, Kirsty? Yeah, sure. Um, So this was promoting The Lion King, but then they went on to talk about Star Wars, because of course, he was even wearing some Boba Fett socks. 
So Aww, that was kind of cute. Um, I got together with the guy, Dave Filoni, who is my partner on this one as producer. And we're writing this stuff and coming up. It's honestly like turning over your toy chest and playing with all the Star Wars toys together. We're having a great time. It's all new characters. It's going to be on Disney Plus coming up in the fall. And we're done with the first season. I was actually writing part of the second season now. So I'm having a blast. Oh, that's nice. Mm-hmm. I'm glad he's enjoying it. Do you um <laughs> have many thoughts, Kirsty? Well, I just think it's interesting that they're so confident in the show that they're already moving on to the second season. Yeah, because no, like that's we true. said, we haven't really seen anything from it. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. So they clearly have a lot of faith in it. And yeah, they're clearly going with this angle when talking about the show that is very much this partnership between Favreau and Dave Filoni, which I know will make a lot of people happy because Dave Filoni is obviously a hero to so many Star Wars fans. And he's that real link to the George Lucas era of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. I think they're really happy with the directors as well because there were rumours also this week of Rick Famuyiwa who directed I think maybe two episodes of the first season, maybe just one, I'm not sure, mm. but that they're in talks with him about the Cassian Andor series. Yes, and I saw that. And he's direct some of that. So that's encouraging because they must be pleased with his work. Yeah, no, that's a real vote of confidence. So yeah, awesome stuff. And yeah, just tell us more about this show, please. So then I can get hyped. Come on. <laughs> yeah, there were there were other things that he was talking about. Like this isn't the full quote. Um, he was talking generally about the premise and how it's like set five years after Return of the Jedi, and it's kind of in that place where, you know, the the government has collapsed, so it's in chaos. Um, which I I'd have to go back to aftermath and check, but I'm I think at that point the New Republic has like officially become a thing. But of course, if you're out on the Outer Rim and you're a bounty hunter, does that really have an impact in your life? Mm. Um, so it's this kind of lawlessness. And I think he referenced the um, cantina where you first meet Han Solo. And he he just seemed very interested in those kind of characters. So bring those to the forefront. Yeah. I wonder if he read something like from a certain point of view, because that is a really nice exploration of all those basically extras just these like weird random people that we see hanging around in the background so it's quite a rich source of material i don't think for a moment he would be adapting anything like that and he's made it clear as original characters but that sort of book is just a nice way of giving flavor to these things Mm -hmm. beyond the aesthetic so i'm sure he's in his research yeah no i think we can trust these guys to do their digging into star wars lore Okay, so the final story that we want to talk about is that Daisy Ridley has spoken about filming her final scene on The Rise of Skywalker, and she was speaking on Couchsurfing, which is a web show put out by PeopleTV.com. And yeah, I found this through the EW website, where I believe it was reporting on what was said. Um, And yeah, this was what Ridley had to say. I just can't remember it. I remember JJ making a speech and I sort of remember a couple of things he said, like I'm always on time, which I appreciate him saying, and then he went to pass me the mic and I was the last person to rap. It was my final shot and I'm just crying in the shot. It was incredibly dramatic. Literally can't remember what I said. Hugged a number of people and then got in the car and looked out the window like I was in a music video. (laughs) Tears rolling down my face. Hand to the window. 
thinking about days gone past. So That's funny. Yeah, it is quite a cute story. And it makes a good story. So I'm glad she shared it. But yeah, what do you get from this, Kirsty, in terms of Daisy Ridley's tears? Um, well, I, I've seen people say, oh, she might not have even been crying in the shot, as in, like, that Ray was crying. But I think that's kind of what she's saying, that, that why the connection was so funny, because it was a very emotional last scene for her to film. And then she went into making a speech, and because she was already crying, it kind of fueled that. Mm, yeah. That's what it sounds like to me. But I don't think it's literally necessarily Ray's last shot of the movie. Oh, yeah. It's just like what they happened to be filming that last day. Exactly. So I imagine that in terms of schedules, you get like extra little bits added to the schedule, like towards the end, like that. Having looked at things earlier, they're like, oh, crap. Yeah, we actually need to go back and do this, you know, so it can all be meticulously planned out from day one because in part is an iterative process where they recognize things that they need and then they'll tag them on at the end. And I think that's especially common with things like close-ups because when editing, they realize they need an extra beat in the scene. And it's like, okay, we need a greater emphasis on this shot or this emotion at this point. And then they'll be like, okay, Daisy, come back. We need a close-up of you crying at this point. Thanks. And yeah, that could easily be the context for what she was filming at the very end. But I'm very doubtful that the last shot in The Rise of Skywalker will be a close-up of Daisy Ridley crying. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised by some of the reactions because I shared this quote on Twitter and got a lot of people freaking out about the fact that Ray was crying. Ray cries a lot, people. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the things I actually really like about that character, that she's very emotional and expressive of that. Um, and tears can be happy or sad or bittersweet or all sorts of things so it's kind of fruitless for us to go down a path of oh it definitely means this because we have no idea exactly we've already been told by multiple cast members that it's very emotional so (laughs) that's kind of what we do know and what we of course would have figured out from the last part of the skywalker saga of course there's going to be emotion so yeah I'm looking forward to seeing more of Ray crying because I like that. But <laughs> Do you like pain, Kirsty? No, no, no. I agree with you. I like the fact that she's so like open with her emotions and her feelings. That's a big part of the appeal of the character to me. The fact that she wears her heart on her sleeve so much and allows herself to be vulnerable, basically. So I feel like that's something quite refreshing, especially in a atmosphere where... There's this emphasis on female characters being strong and resilient and not allowing anything to get to them. So I think that's all right up to a certain point. But at the same time, you should still let these characters be human and you should let them feel things. And I think the sequel trilogy has done a great job of really letting Rey express and indulge in emotion. And it does that quite frequently. And yeah, it's one of the many reasons why we love it so much. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, so with the news out of the way, we can move into our spotlight section, which will be focused on what the mythic structures, specifically the structure of the Cupid and Psyche myth, have to tell us about how the rise of Skywalker might play out. So this is going to be our speculation episode, basically. So we ask you to be gentle with us and not take us uber seriously, um, because 
yeah, it's informed speculation, basically. So we're not pulling things out of thin air. And we like to think we have a logical thought process behind, like, the ideas we're going to suggest. But, yeah, it's not like we're analysing an existing text, basically. We're attempting to get a sense for the shape of something that does not yet exist to the public, anyway. (laughs) So, yeah, it'll be an interesting exercise. Yeah, and of course, this won't be our last of the speculating for The Rise of Skywalker as we get more information in the lead up to December. We'll keep revising what we think of it, naturally, and continue to talk about that. But um, it just felt like a good episode to do after we've done kind of a recap of how the sequel trilogy fits into these existing myths so far. It's like, okay, well, if it is to continue in that vein, what might we expect in very vague terms? Um, And of course, we're using Cupid and Psyche as the myth because that's kind of been the framework that Robin Johnson uses in... um, understanding feminine psychology which we talked about last week um but it's not the only fairy tale slash myth in that genre it's just kind of the first in western civilization yes um and there have been many different versions of that since um i actually wanted to quickly recommend before we get started um a book that i bought around the time that the disney live action beauty and the beast came out um it's not like it has a cover relating to that movie or anything but i think they just kind of did a synchronized marketing thing <laughs> it's <laughs> Very by a woman called maria tatar who is professor of folklore and mythology and germanic languages and literatures at harvard um it's called beauty and the beast classic tales about animal brides and grooms from around the world so she has a really great introduction to the history of beauty and the beast and why it resonates in so many different cultures and so many different guises and how you get stories where it's actually the woman who is the beastly character and you can have different subversions going on there and then she takes you through translations of various stories around the world so highly recommend that to people awesome i need to get that and it includes yeah it includes cupid and psyche as the first story so that's kind of how it sets you off okay awesome i guess it makes sense it's like the foundational text basically of this archetype essentially yeah it is in terms of like greek western civilization she starts with zeus and europa for for greek then she goes on to rome which is cupid and psyche Mm. um the girl who married a snake from india and hassan of basra from iran so those are like the ancient versions of these myths and then she goes into ones from italy germany um of course east of the sun west of the moon from norway Mm. um from all over so really interesting to kind of see the similarities and where things diverge yeah it's so fascinating like it's the sort of thing where it's impossible to know of any certainty because for the most part we don't even know where these stories originated we might have like a recorded version written down by one person but that doesn't mean the story was invented by that person so it's impossible to trace the exact origin but it's mm-hmm. like, how aware were the people who told these stories of the previously existing versions and the versions told in different countries and different regions and stuff? Yeah, it's so fascinating. That's a whole area area of scholarly study. So I'm sure there is research out there on that transmission of these stories. But yeah, that's something I need to look into. Yeah, that's not too relevant to what we're going to talk about, though. Well, it kind of is in that when we come back to the sequel trilogy, what we're saying is that we believe this fits however vaguely or however freeform you want to interpret it as into this 
section of storytelling. Mm, yeah. And as she talks about in that introduction, like the appeal of Beauty and the Beast is that each version can be, it's, it's almost like how memes work, right? It's uh, relevant to the time and has these universal themes. Yeah, that's so true. I think that's why the sequel trilogy resonates with so many of us. Exactly. Ultimate win would be if after The Rise of Skywalker has come out and people can finally talk about it freely, someone like J.J. Abrams did actually start name-dropping myths and archetypal references and stuff. And God, if he said Cuban and Psyche, I'd be like, win! If we don't like to assume that everyone has listened to the previous episodes... So we're just going to do a quick summary of the story of Cupid and Psyche so far and then we're going to pick up with the rest of the story but we'll talk about that in a bit more detail so then we can pause periodically and discuss how that particular aspect of the myth might filter through to the rise of Skywalker. So yeah, would you like to read out the story so far for Cupid and Psyche, Kirsty? Sure. Psyche is a princess who is so beautiful that she attracts the jealous attention of the goddess Venus or Aphrodite. Venus sends her son Cupid to go and shoot Psyche with a love arrow so she will fall in love with a hideous monster. Cupid accidentally cuts himself with his own arrow and instantly falls in love with Psyche himself. He spirits Psyche away to a marvellous palace where she is waited on by invisible servants. Cupid himself visits Psyche at night but remains invisible to her. She is forbidden from looking at him. Psyche grows homesick, and missing her family, begs to be allowed to see her sisters. Cupid gives his permission, but Psyche's sisters are filled with jealousy and resentment upon hearing about her marvellous new life. They fill her mind with doubts, encouraging her to suspect that her invisible husband is actually a monster. At night, Psyche raises a candle to Cupid's face, revealing a lovely young man. Hot wax falls onto his face, scarring him. He flees from Psyche, leaving her abandoned and in despair. Yeah, so that's the story so far. That was actually my like spontaneous write-up of the story so far. So just to be clear, I think in the version we were using before, it was an oil lamp, and it was a bit of oil that fell on his face. But I do think it depends on which version you're reading, and it's either oil or tallow from a candle. So either works, he's scarred, he leaves. So yeah, that's the key bit that we need to know. So yeah, we obviously won't analyse all that over again because we do that in our episode on the feminine in Star Wars. So do go and check that out if you haven't already and you're interested. But yeah, for now, we are going to go into what happens to Psyche next. So I'll do a bit of reading myself here. So thank you, Wikipedia, for this excellent synopsis <laughs> of the myth. Um, because yeah, I did not retell this part of it myself because I was like, yeah, that was too much. Okay, so in the course of her wanderings, Psyche comes upon a temple of Demeter and inside finds a disorder of grain offerings, garlands and agricultural implements, prompting a manifestation of Demeter herself. Although Psyche prays for her aid and Demeter acknowledges that she deserves it, the goddess is prohibited from helping her against a fellow goddess. A similar incident occurs at a temple of Hera. Psyche realises that she must serve Venus herself. Venus revels in having the girl under her power and turns Psyche over to her two handmaids, worry and sadness, to be whipped and tortured. 
Venus tears her clothes and bashes her head into the ground and mocks her for conceiving a child in a sham marriage. Just to be clear, Psyche became pregnant when she was with Cupid. Sorry, I missed that from my synopsis. Um, the goddess then throws before her a great mass of mixed wheat, barley, poppy seed, chickpeas, lentils and beans, demanding that she sort them into separate heaps by dawn. But when Venus withdraws to attend a wedding feast, a kind aunt takes pity on Psyche and assembles a fleet of insects to accomplish the task. Venus is furious when she returns drunk from the feast and only tosses Psyche a crust of bread. At this point in the story, it is revealed that Cupid is also in the house of Venus, languishing from his injury. Okay, would you care to read out the quote from Johnson that sort of explains the meaning that can be extrapolated from this in a more general psychological sense, Kirsty, and then we'll move on to talk about Star Wars. <laughs> mm-hmm. A woman must know how to differentiate, how to start sort creatively. To do this, she needs to find her ant nature, that primitive, chthonic, earthy quality which will help her. The ant nature is not of the intellect. It does not give us rules to follow. It is a primitive, instinctive, and quiet quality, legitimately available to women. It is easy to overlook another dimension of the sorting process, the inner one. Just as much material comes from the unconscious demanding to be sorted as comes from our modern, too much with us, outer world. It is a special province of a woman to sort in this inner dimension. Okay. Cool. And again, just a reminder that Johnson says in the introduction that when he talks about women, he's also talking about the feminine aspect of the self, whether that's for men or women. Mm. So yeah <laughs> no there's an important disclaimer because while we're mostly going to relate this stuff to ray that doesn't exclude the possibility that these processes and the sort of learning and sorting quality that johnson talks about other characters can be going for exactly the same thing like male or female it's not just about ray she just so happens to be off focus because she's the beating heart of this story and the engine that drives the narrative basically so it makes the most sense to look at how this impacts her and what it might say about where she'll be taken so Mm -hmm. yeah obviously we're not going to have a literal scenario where someone (laughs) pours a bag of seeds at ray's feet and says sort them girl um but yeah in terms of this general idea of sorting and bringing order to things whether in an external sense or or an interior one like how could you see that sort of thing being manifested in the rise of skywalker kirsty i guess there's a few different ways because as johnson says you can have like something that's like a physical sorting of the material and something that's inner Mm -hmm. and i think especially kind of trying to relate that back to the force because we know that Ray is a scavenger and has all this understanding of like mechanics and how they work. We could see her like actually trying to put something together in as, as like a puzzle, but also that it relies on either friends helping her. So you can have like the ants in terms of either Finn and Poe or some aliens that are in the environment that they happen to be in. Mm-hmm. So that could either be like Claude character we've seen, the big kind of slug alien who seems to be on the resistance side of things um or it could be like a group of aliens like we see with the yakiyaki who are natives to basana um because that's the kind of group that could either be like a background thing to kind of fuel world building or they could actually play a part in the story it's hard to say right now 
Basically, just be the idea of giving assistance, essentially, right. helping to overcome a problem. Sure. Having that, but also having Ray bring something that's uniquely hers in that scenario to the forefront in terms of like her force abilities. Yeah. And I think it's also going to be about a way of integrating those disparate elements of Ray's character. This is interesting how she's got these very earthy, practical qualities to her in terms of, like you said, Kirsty, of the mechanical ability and how she's great at fixing stuff. But then she's also got this more mystical, divine quality with the gift of the Force and her powers in that regard. And I think we're going to see more fusing of those different aspects of herself. So I think there's a real reason why throughout this whole trilogy she hasn't stopped wielding that staff everywhere, you know, and she still has the blaster. And I think that's conscious. It's because she's not just about this divine mystical element. She's also got these other aspects of herself. And I think a big part of her journey in this film is going to be about recognising those differences and forming a harmony between them somehow. Yeah, I think that's something that we talked about last week, right? In terms of the overall goals of the feminine journey in myth. It's about integrating those two seemingly distinct worlds um, hand in hand with integrating the masculine and feminine. Yeah, exactly. It'll be interesting to see exactly how that goes because it looks based on some of the footage we've got that they're kind of on this sort of like action sequency chase thing. So mm. are they looking for something specific at that point? Does that play into this somehow? Or is this before that? And that could be part of like another quest. Mm. It's very hard to say. Yeah, no, it is interesting. And I think whatever this like mysterious MacGuffin that's driving the plot is, I think that's going to have lots of interesting significance and symbolic meaning. But yeah, we can't even begin to talk about that yet as we don't know what the MacGuffin is really. So, <laughs> Okay, cool. Would you like to read the next part of the myth, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. At dawn, Venus sets a second task for Psyche. She is to cross a river and fetch golden wool from violent sheep who graze on the other side. These sheep are elsewhere identified as belonging to the Helios. Psyche's only intention is to drown herself on the way, but instead she is saved by instructions from a divinely inspired reed of the type used to make musical instruments and gathers the wool caught on briars. Cool. Yeah, And then we have an explanation from Johnson which again like illuminates this a bit because just reading this sort of myth it all seems like a bit disjointed and bizarre sometimes so it's useful to have the more psychological mythic explanation for it so johnson the ram represents a great instinctive masculine elemental quality that can erupt unexpectedly as an invading complex within a personality this power is awesome and numinous like the experience of the burning bush, forces and powers in the depths of the unconscious that can overwhelm the conscious ego if they are not handled correctly. Our myth gives explicit instruction on how Psyche may wisely approach the ram power. She is not to go to it in the heat of day, but at dusk, and she is to take fleece that has gathered on the twigs and branches, not directly from the rams. Since power is such a double-edged sword, it is a good rule to take only as much as one needs, and that as quietly as possible. To underdo power is to remain dominated by interior parental voices. Overdoing power can quickly become abusive and rampage about, 
leaving behind wreckage and destruction. So yeah, what do you have to say to this, Kirsty? Well, mine is hardly an original thought because so many other talented, knowledgeable people in this fandom have already pointed out, uh, including Nat, Ashes for Foxes at Meta Machina, um, that that kind of symbolism we got in the Rise of Skywalker's teaser of Kylo's ship rushing towards Rey in the desert and her jumping over it kind of evokes that imagery of bullfighting in mythology. Mm. Um, and that's what this reminded me of. Yeah, um, I had the because, same thought. <laughs> right, because <laughs> there's this emphasis on it being indirect and the way that Rey's running away from the ship, first of all, seems to suggest that. Of course, at first we see her looking heads on um, quite resolute and confident, albeit maybe a little nervous. I don't know, it's very hard to say. Um, but the way she jumps over, and of course we don't know how that sequence ends, whether she ends up on top of it or on the other side. Um, but something about that just kind of led me to think of that because that idea of Kylo's ship being the ram which Johnson describes a great instinctive masculine elemental quality that can erupt unexpectedly as an invading complex within a personality. That kind of sounds like Kylo. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> At yeah. least in that moment. And it really drives home the sort of level that the sequel trilogy is operating at because Johnson refers to that like masculine quality as being something that exists within a personality, whereas... Mm. Kylo really embodies that in quite a literal way with, again, as we were talking about in the episode on masculinity, with all those like violent, destructive impulses and that like uncontrollable energy that he possesses. So yeah, he's full on Ram energy and it's not symbolic or subconscious in him. It's fully manifest and he embodies that in a very visceral, tangible way. He is, but it's not all the time, and I can just as easily see that sequence evolving into them both getting out and talking and him actually starting to behave quite differently once they're face-to-face. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, 100%. Like, as we discussed, like, across both the previous episodes, Kylo isn't any one thing. I don't think any of these characters are any one thing, but Kylo's perhaps the most extreme example because, yeah, he fully embodies that whole, like wild masculine ram-like energy as johnson would put it but he also embodies something more complicated and nuanced and subtle within him as well so yeah carlo's problem is that he's at extremes basically and he doesn't have a means of negotiating between them in an effective way no there's definitely more going on to him than that but I I agree with you in that I think it's the sort of sequence where it will evolve a great deal over the course of it. And even if he comes charging at her in that aspect when he first arrives, I don't think it's going to remain constantly at that level across (laughs) the entire sequence. Well, it can't, can it? Yeah. Some kind of climax or decision. (laughs) It would just be ridiculous. (laughs) It'd just be like, ah! It'd just be shouting and screaming and stomping. She really would just be bullfighting. Yeah. It would just be like, dude, you've got to chill. Got to chill. Come on. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. No, so I really like how this phase of the journey is described. And I think it's interesting, the whole resolution to it. This idea of it having to be handled in like quite a quiet, restrained way. And that you can like face this like overt like 
energy and violence with like equal energy and violence is not going to be the right approach there needs to be something subtler and quieter and I think this sort of sequence in The Rise of Skywalker it would be very much about demonstrating Rey's mastery and understanding of the need for that restraint and that control so yeah so I will read out the next part of the story for Psyche's third task, she is given a crystal vessel in which to collect the black water spewed by the source of the rivers Styx and Cassitus. Climbing the cliff from which it issues, she is daunted by the foreboding air of the place and the dragons slivering through the rocks and falls into despair. Zeus himself takes pity on her and sends his eagle to battle the dragons and retrieve the water for her. So Johnson has this to say. The feminine aspect of the human psyche has been described as unfocused consciousness. The feminine nature is flooded with the rich vastness of possibilities in life and is drawn to all of them, usually all at once. But this is impossible. One cannot do or be so many things at once. Many of the possibilities open to us oppose each other and one that must choose among them. Like the eagle who has panoramic vision, one must look at the vast river, focus on a single spot, and then dip out a single globule of water. Yeah, I find this one particularly like interesting to talk about. It's one of the more oblique ones in terms of what's going on, and the symbolism seems really heavy. Yes, like one of the things I think about is that we know that there's going to be this fight between Ray and Kylo in the movie, which is like shock horror. They're gonna fight. Who knew? <laughs> Um, which obviously isn't surprising because, yeah, it's the third movie, they're going to clash again. Yeah, like I'm mostly interested in relation to some of the imagery we've got showing that fight so far. So the two main pieces of imagery we have are the cover to the Art of the Rise of Skywalker book, which is a really awesome image where it shows two levels, Rey above and Kylo below, and they're both in different types of landscapes and their sabers are just touching like at the meeting point between their two environments basically it's always hard to describe an image but hopefully i conjured up something workable for people if they're not familiar with it and you should definitely check it out this is an amazing cover um and then the other image is from the vanity fair shoes and it shows rain kylo fighting in the pouring rain or if it's not the rain, it's as a wave is coming over them, basically. So, like, we don't know how those two images interrelate fully yet. Um, but obviously, all will become clear in due course. But it's interesting to me in relation to the myth, in that we obviously have the water imagery going on in the myth and in the movie. And there's also this idea of different environments and perhaps like the possibilities that are open to the characters because you have this idea with water washing away the past and being this sort of cleansing mechanism and yeah opening things up for like a fresh start and new possibilities so yeah I think all that sort of symbolism is going to be used quite deliberately Mm -hmm. yeah I think the idea of them being flooded with a rich vastness of possibilities that can be seen in the symbolism of water or a giant wave or some kind of version of baptism almost, right? Mm -hmm. Which we got to an extent when Rey dove into the water in The Last Jedi. Um, 
but I think they can they can do that again in a different way and present this idea of them being yeah all these possibilities and something marking a change somehow in terms of how they interact with each other what they're saying to each other during that moment and then what comes of that fight yeah Um, because they're definitely not going to be walking away from it in the same place that they were when they arrived Mm -hmm. so what happens to kind of change the course of both of their journeys at that point yeah and i think in relation to that scene in the last jedi where ray gets dunked in the water i think it's going to be very significant that they're both together and both getting soaked at the same time because (laughs) sorry if it's so silly to discuss it it's soaked (laughs) um but yeah whereas in the last jedi that was like an initiation like a turning point for ray herself like on her own presumably based on just this one image that we have from vanity fair I assume it's going to be a turning point for both of them at the same time and it's going to mark a decision that they need to make together in some way because, yeah, they're going to be confronted with each other and whatever their decision is, it's going to have implications for the other person. So it's going to be a joint thing. I agree. Well, because if you think about the emotions of these two characters, Mm. especially if they're still in a stage where they're fighting each other, if that is indeed what's happening in those scenes, um, they have all these assumptions and valid to an extent to varying degrees feelings about what happened between them in the last movie and how they both presumably feel kind of betrayed and let down by the other. So I can see this fight actually being quite verbal with them lashing out at each other and you betrayed me, no, you betrayed me and left me. Oh, I'm sure, <laughs> and, yeah. Um, kind of st- maybe starting to learn how to see things from the other character's point of view. Yeah. But who knows? And I think it's also going to be a question of, for both of them, recognising that in a way it's okay to keep things personal and it's okay to have this be a small thing. Because, yes, they are respectively supreme leader of the First Order and icon and heroine of the Resistance, which makes them both like icons and archetypes more than like flesh and blood people in many ways. Like, they can't solely be those things. They need to accept their own humanity and their own relationship. And, yeah, like, I think it's going to come down to quite an intimate level with them, just talking and connecting as people probably in quite a emotionally charged way. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be that whole idea of keeping it small and that's going to be something that I imagine will be important to the filmmakers because they need this sort of clash to have emotional resonance for the audience, which it doesn't have. It's just two stoic people mindlessly going at it with no clear interrelationship. So it's going to be very emotional for that reason and is also going to be emotional because in that way it's going to serve both of their arcs so much better absolutely i think it speaks to how daisy has expressed so much excitement lately about this fight um, and how she's free to do that presumably because it's not the fight of the movie like we said before it doesn't seem like a third act kind of thing but because of that it's probably this key turning point emotionally for the characters yeah exactly and I'd also just briefly like to discuss a recurring theme that is coming up throughout all these trials, which is this idea of Psyche falling into despair and she's about to give <laughs> up slash throw herself off something. Um, and yeah, we obviously can't take that literally, which is like the caveat I keep repeating again and again. Um, 
but I think that just represents that we're going to see lots of moments of doubts and can I do this? Is this even possible? And there will be moments of real despair and hopelessness. And I really think we're going to see Ray suffer more in this movie than we have seen her suffer in the previous ones, which makes my heart break for her preemptively because my baby Ray, I don't like to see her in pain or suffer. But I think it's necessary because yeah is part of this experience of self-actualization and she's going to need to go through a lot and experience this whole spectrum of emotions to actually come out of it the other end this more fully realized complete person mm-hmm. and if we think about how big a role palpatine might be playing in this movie whether that's in terms of actual screen time or just in terms of him kind of being the puppet master behind mm. the scenes as he always is yeah um and how like we were talking about from the beginning in terms of the sith trooper like having this contingency having orchestrated things because we know that palpatine is the master of all of that um and ray and kylo coming to terms with that again coming back to what jj said about this generation having to unite against the greatest evil i think there is going to be suffering for ray for sure but I don't think it's going to come at the hands of what whom most people might expect, mm. as in being her antagonist, Kylo, because I think their relationships kind of move beyond that now. Yeah. So in terms of emotional suffering, in terms of how they both feel that they've wronged or they've been wronged by the other, sure. But that comes back to like that intimate exchange that you were talking about. Yeah. And that's very different from being in mortal peril or... Um, kind of having this like huge existential grand threat to the galaxy yeah and to go back to that whole idea of palpatine equals venus like obviously we were going for the whole venus equals was a snoke angle for the previous episodes but snoke's kind of been taken off the chessboard so we need to think about like who's going to fill that sort of archetypal role in this phase of the story and unless Snoke makes a surprise return in resurrected form, which I think both of us strongly doubt, then yeah, Palpatine is the most likely candidate for that. And in the myth, you obviously have this aspect where Venus keeps setting Psyche all these awful, impossible tasks, basically just to torment her and to screw with her. Like So it's done purely out of malice and like ill intent basically nothing really is being gained from it by venus apart from kicks essentially because she's not a nice person in this story so yeah 100 <laughs> percent not rooting for her except by the end she's like part of the party and everything and also given yeah that's mythology though somehow i don't see that happening with palpatine <laughs> <laughs> yeah no no i don't and to be fair i think she gets a telling off in the myth oh yeah yeah so yeah it's not 100 percent. so i just presume palpatine's telling off will be his death <laughs> if he's even alive yeah if he's even alive who knows but yeah his defeat in some way yeah but in terms of that idea of palpatine fulfilling this venus role I think that will very much be manifest in this idea of him as this chess master, like mm-hmm. manipulating things, perhaps from be- beyond the grave, who knows, because we're still unsure on what his level of presence is going to be. But yeah, it's going to be this idea that he keeps everyone on their toes and he has them all acting according to his whims and his design, which 
I kind of like the parallel because it is this whole Grecian god idea of someone who's really just screwing with people. And I know that Palpatine would have a goal beyond that and that he'd probably want to resurrect himself or gain control of the galaxy or something. But in a way, it is that whole essence of pure malice and just that enjoyment in watching people suffer which I think Palpatine and Venus have in common. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's another parallel. Yeah, it's that theme on. of um, generational conflict that is so prevalent in not just the sequel trilogy, but fe- fairy tales and myths in general, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, 100%. Okay, cool. Would you like to read out the next part of the story, Kirsty, which is a bit of a longer one? <laughs> the last trial Venus imposes on Psyche is a quest to the underworld itself. She is to take a box and obtain in it a dose of the beauty of Persephone, queen of the underworld. Venus claims her own beauty has faded through tending her ailing son, and she needs this remedy in order to attend the theatre of the gods. Once again despairing of her task, Psyche climbs a tower, planning to throw herself off. The tower, however, suddenly breaks into speech, and advises her to travel to Lacedaemon, Greece, and to seek out the place called Tenaris, where she will find the entrance to the underworld. The tower offers instructions for navigating the underworld. The airway of Dis is there, and through the yawning gates the pathless route is revealed. Once you cross the threshold, you are committed to the unswerving course that takes you to the very region of Orcus. But you shouldn't go empty-handed through the shadows past this point, but rather carry cakes of honeyed barley in both hands, and transport two coins in your mouth. The speaking tower warns her to maintain silence as she passes by several ominous figures a lame man driving a mule loaded with sticks, a dead man swimming in the river that separates the world of the living from the world of the dead, and old women weaving. These, the tower warns, will seek to divert her by pleading for her help. She must ignore them. The cakes are treats for distracting Severus, the three-headed watchdog of Orcus, and the two coins for Sharon the ferryman, so she can make a return trip. Okay, great. Thank you for the reading, Kirsty. So, from Johnson. Psyche must make her way into the underworld through the place of waste. How many journeys begin at the least expected or valued place? Down the pathless way into the dark recesses of the inner world. She must not stop on the way and must not be drawn aside by her generosity or her usual feminine kindness. Otherwise she will be exhausted and stranded. If she does not have enough energy stored up at the beginning of the journey, she will not have the means of accomplishing it. This journey requires rest, solitude, and an accumulation of energy. So, yeah, this is very, very hard to match to whatever might happen in The Rise of Skywalker, because obviously if this does have a parallel in the film, it would be right at the end of the film. So this is the sort of stuff that we have no idea about, and we have no sense of how it will play out. But in terms of the underworld and what that might be in The Rise of Skywalker. I think we have something that stands out as a good possibility in the Death Star wreckage because, yeah, like, how would you see that as a parallel to the underworld in this sequel trilogy, Kirsty? Well, it kind of serves as a parallel to Starkiller in terms of where Rey first ascended into the underworld when Kylo abducted her. Yeah, great um, point. So it's, it, it's a return in that sense. Um, but the Death Star, it's similar in terms of the Cupid and Psyche myth because it's a man-made structure contrasting with nature. 
which I think is a theme throughout both stories um, and was definitely a theme in the original trilogy. But it also symbolizes a past that still haunts this generation. Mm-hmm. And it's so mysterious, right? The way that it's built up to in the the end of the teaser where they're walking towards that cliff and then suddenly you see it in the distance and start to realize what it is and then you hear Palpatine who presumably is hidden inside or maybe that's just kind of something that's a bit misleading. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I can see that potentially being how they symbolize the underworld in this story. Yeah. And I like this idea about all this preparation that would be required to make this journey into the underworld because... I think there's potential for the Death Star wreckage to be visited more than once and for the different visits to be paralleled and with the first perhaps being shown as you were not prepared at this time and therefore it went wrong and you failed in some way and then at the end of the film there would have been that period of preparation and getting ready for this experience and then that would be a successful venture into the underworld. I could see them doing something like that. Um, mm. Equally, there could just be one journey into the underworld. And there could have either been that correct period of preparation and thoughtfulness given to what's to come. In which case it could be successful. Or there could just be one journey into the underworld without all that due preparation and things could go wrong and chaos could ensue only to be resolved through various machinations that we might go into a bit in the next part of the discussion but yeah i think there will be like some serious preparation that needs to go into the climax and it will just be interesting to see how that's framed because I don't think it's going to be like training montage <laughs> or like meditation montage, although they certainly could allude to something like that. It's just thinking about how they would depict that process of preparation in a film where you obviously can't show a character meditating for 10 minutes because, yeah, it's boring. It's got to be dynamic <laughs> and moving and, yeah, it's got to have a clip to it, which those sorts of sequences would not. So yeah, like, do you have any ideas for how they might show preparation and that sort of stage, Kirsty? I think we're going to sh- see some interesting choices in terms of who Ray is involved with at each point of the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously in the teaser, they show us Poe and Finn with her as she's walking towards the Death Star. Um, but is that how it's actually going to play out when she takes what you say might be the second trip to the Death Star or even if it's the first does something happen does she tell them to go back that she wants to face whatever it is alone mm. um, I don't know I think that might have some implications for it in terms of how she prepares for things because if she has some time alone before either Kylo turns up or one of her friends comes to rescue her or something do you know what I mean like yeah I feel I like we're exactly, gonna get yeah. those quiet moments of contemplation and resolve from Ray. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how it would play out, but I do think it relates to who she's with at the time or if she's with anyone. I think that's a really great thought, actually. And hearing you say that made me think that it might play out something like the first time she approaches it with Finn and Poe and then she has the whole I need to go on alone moment. And then she goes in and then because she wasn't adequately prepared and she didn't have what she needed... Like, which may well be her friends, which may well be someone to help her and assist her in this experience. 
um, she like fails and something goes wrong when she ventures into the underworld. And then upon resurfacing, that becomes the foundation for learning and gives her an impetus to prepare and think about, okay, if I go back in there, what do I need to do that successfully? And yeah, that could lead to anything. That could be the basis for some sort of alliance or truce between Rey and Kylo, for example, with them both venturing into this underworld together. And that is just spec like in terms of how things might play out but yeah i think that's feasible Mm -hmm. because i think in general not even just talking about this section of cupid and psyche but in this movie um i think we're really gonna feel the difference between the separation of ray and kylo which will obviously be amplified by the fact that there'll have been a significant time jump between the last jedi and the rise of skywalker Mm. um and It'll be interesting to see in that time whether they have been experiencing the Force connections again or if they genuinely have been completely separate yeah. and kind of processing things without each other. Because a key part of this story for Cupid and Psyche is that Cupid kind of only shows up when he's needed or that um, Psyche's in true danger. Um, yeah. It might be a little different because as we've seen from different parts of the story... They subvert the choices sometimes, so of course it's Ray leaving Kylo as opposed to Cupid fleeing when she scars him and that sort of thing. Yeah. But I still feel it'll play a part. Yeah, no, that's true. And I think it might also be enacted in a way that relates to a discussion we were having last time about like, at what point is a character an actual woman and at what point is she the anima or is she the counterpart to like the masculine um so i I think we see that to some extent with ray and i think it'd be interesting to see that explored with kylo in the rise of skywalker because if they do commit to this idea of separation between them they could do something where for the most part kylo in relation to Rey, he's mainly serving as her animus, like as the dramatization of that aspect of herself. And then he only returns into her sphere of the story as a literal presence, as an as a real separate person from her at the very end. So they could do something like that. Mm-hmm. I think that relates back potentially to what we were talking about earlier in terms of Kylo being left relatively distant from the rest of the First Order's political ongoings. Mm. So he's mostly involved with the Knights of Ren and maybe on this quest with them in the way that Rey is on a quest with her friends, but otherwise quite set apart from Hux and Pride and all of that stuff. Yeah. I kind of feel like it makes it a bit messy on a symbolic level if you try to make him too integrated with like the political drama and stuff. So it loses some of the nice focus it has when it is so much more about these interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Kirsty, could you read out the next part of the Cupid and Psyche story, please? Everything comes to pass according to plan, and Persephone grants Psyche's humble entreaty. As soon as she re-enters the light of day, however, Psyche is overcome by a bold curiosity and can't resist opening the box in the hope of enhancing her own beauty. She finds nothing inside but an infernal and Stygian sleep, which sends her into a deep and unmoving torpor. Okay, so this is one of the weirder parts of the myth, and Johnson has thoughts about it, which we will read out. 
Next, it is important not to dispel the energy for the journey by settling in with Persephone and adopting her ways. It would also abort the journey. Persephone is queen of the underworld, the most hidden of all the goddesses, external maiden, queen of mysteries. This part of a woman must be honoured and respected, for it is here that the mystery is to be found, but you may not identify with it. And then Johnson argues that the beauty queen is analogous to the great female mystery, which I'm sure he's a complete expert in. Sorry, I'm just being silly. The deepest interior mystery for a woman may not be named or given any label. It is the essence of that feminine quality which must remain a mystery, certainly to men, and hardly less so for women. It is not less than the elements of healing itself. When Psyche disobeys... She takes the divine feminine element for her own use and is made unconscious by it. This is the most dangerous moment of the journey, and many people fail here. To identify with the mystery is to lapse into unconsciousness, which is the end of any further development. So, yeah, this is like the absolute pit of despair of the story, I suppose, where Psyche falls into a sleep-like death, like so many fairy tale characters before her, think Sleeping Beauty, etc., etc. Um, and actually, after her, because yeah, the fairy tales will have come after the myth. Gosh, um, sorry, the usual phrases don't work. Um, and yeah, I think there's all sorts of interesting stuff going on here in relation to what it could mean. Um, but it's all a bit esoteric, and it's going to be a bit hard to grapple with so yeah what are your thoughts in relation to this stage Kirsty, the darkest point yeah i think in various heroines journey models this would be described as like the nadir after descending into the underworld it's the most dangerous point right mm-hmm. where you feel really feel the stakes of what could be lost here so i think the theme of sacrifice comes into play whether we're talking about ray or kylo or both yeah probably is both to be honest um, in terms of how they both feel about what might be lost. Um, so I've got a quote here from Marie-Louise von Franz um, from her book Animus and Anima and Fairy Tales. Only by sacrificing what we have can we know what we have. Real sacrifice is made with the same definiteness and lack of bargaining that is involved in throwing something away. We can do this only if we are forced to by a greater power in us, a power stronger than the ego that gives us the necessary strength. We experience this power as an inner imperative, which tells us that we must. In Jungian psychology, we understand that as a message from the self, the regulating center of the psyche. The sacrificer and what is sacrificed are one and the same. It is always the self. When the girl sacrifices what is precious to her, she has a chance to realize the true meaning of her life. And that's something I think we can probably anticipate seeing applied quite clearly to Ray's journey in The Rise of Skywalker. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yes, like sacrifice is fundamental to souls, really. So it definitely won't be unique to this film, but I think it's going to be a uniquely feminine type of sacrifice and something with really interesting psychological implications, given all the like groundwork, basically, that we've been talking about for the last hour and a bit. <laughs> Um, because, yeah, like, according to our perspective and our reading of all this, this is obviously going to involve Rain Kylo and, as you said, Kirsty, either one of them being sacrificed, both of them being sacrificed, who knows? 
but they're one and the same. Yeah, exactly. Dun, but they're dun. one and the same. They're two yeah. halves of our protagonist, as Ryan Johnson said. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like whoever isn't the one doing the sacrificing still feels the loss just as deeply, if not more. So yeah. lots of suffering <laughs> this way comes. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So prepare for pain, people, basically. Um, but yeah, this is such a fascinating like stage. And I like that whole idea of identifying with Persephone, like queen of the underworld. Um, and this is going to be me going on like a mild little Ray Palpatine kick, which I know. It's like, I know you don't like it, Kirsty, But in terms of wild theories and how aspects of this myth might play into the story, I do like the idea that there might be that temptation to Ray in terms of if there is some link to Palpatine and whether that's she's his great great niece, never met Uncle Palpatine, but he's now very interested in getting her into the family business. That's a joke. Um, or if like she's created through some sort of machinations of Palpatine in some manner or the course of her life was determined by machinations of Palpatine, something along those lines. I could see during this whole underworld phase there being some sort of compulsion or temptation to go to him and identify with him and that very much being something that needs to be resisted and overcome in order for her to succeed. What do you think well, of yeah. Um When you say Ray Palpatine, I take that to mean as blood relative. Sure. And that's her last name. So that I do not like for understandable reasons. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Which I don't need to go into. But in terms of how Palpatine's actions might have shaped Ray's life, uh, I can absolutely see that as a possibility. Cool. Because we saw that he was present on Jakku, that he recruited young children like Gallius Rex to do his bidding. Um, obviously we know that's completely in character for someone who targeted Anakin Skywalker from a young age mm-hmm. um, so yeah I don't know exactly how that will play out but I wouldn't be surprised because I feel like there has to be some kind of link for Rey yeah exactly. it's about um, making it personal for her in a way that it wasn't really personal when you had that whole dynamic with Snoke in the throne room yeah Snoke was very dismissive of her <laughs> which again was in keeping with what we were talking about at that point in terms of how Venus behaves towards Aphrodite, like mocking her, um, emphasizing her lowly status compared to the gods, that are, you know, her and Cupid and, and Luke Skywalker, you know, that, that she was someone who could just be disposed of and completely underestimating his apprentice's attachment to her. Mm. But it can't play out that exact same way for Palpatine, so... Yeah. Which is why it's kind of interesting to think about Palpatine, not just in terms of this, like, malicious and bitter Venus figure, but also as embodying these king and queen of the underworld. This is me venturing into unknown quantities. I should not be talking about Jungian philosophy. (laughs) This is something I know so little about. Um, But yeah, this whole idea of anima and animus and Hades and Persephone as this sort of like anima, animus presence existing in the underworld, then yeah, even though Palpatine, wrinkly old dude, you don't think of him as having a feminine side. (laughs) Um, Like I could see like him embodying some of these same qualities that Persephone embodies in the myth and serving vaguely similar functions because yeah. I don't know, I just like the idea. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do like the idea of there being something tangible that they've been looking for, and then actually it turns out that it's empty box, um, mm, yeah, or something that can actually harm them in a way. Yeah, so. the ultimate MacGuffin, basically. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> holocron that has <laughs> terrible implications. Of course, yeah, <laughs> the holocron of the Cupid and Psyche myth, amazing. <laughs> um. But yeah, no, so lots and lots of interesting stuff going on in this story and all sorts of ways in which it could factor in. So we will get to the penultimate part of the story. So, meanwhile, Cupid's wound has healed into a scar and he escapes his mother's house by flying out of a window. When he finds Psyche, he draws the sleep from her face and replaces it in the box and then pricks her with an arrow that does no harm. He lifts her into the air and takes her to present the box to Venus. Okay, so this is obviously the moment of salvation and rescue after that Nadir. Would you like to read what Johnson has to say about this moment, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. Psyche would have failed at this test, but her failure activates Eros, or her interior masculine side, into his masculine power and he comes to rescue her. It is the prick of an arrow of love which awakens her and redeems her from the sleep of death. Only love can save you from the hardness and remoteness of partial spirituality. So obviously this makes me think of Rose in The Last Jedi and that whole line about saving what we love. Because mm-hmm. I think that's pretty fundamental to the whole of Star Wars. And it's so fundamental to the sequel trilogy that they've literally spelled it out for people and said it loudly um, to the point that it can't really be ignored. So... Yeah, I, I definitely think that mission statement will factor in very heavily into The Rise of Skywalker, particularly at the end, which is when love would most be needed because, yeah, things are going to get very dark and there needs to be salvation from that darkness. And I think that salvation is going to have to come through love. Simple mm-hmm. as. Yeah. I think we could see some dying, some crying, and maybe a little kissing. Oh my god, it sounds so good. Little kissing. It could be the subtitle. <laughs> Crying, dying, and a little kissing. <laughs> I think it's fully possible at this stage. Yeah, definitely. It makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, and I'd just like to talk about this idea about the loved one returning to rescue their counterpart. Because I know we've been saying amongst ourselves, Kirsty, about who might fill this role if we had a literal enactment of this basically where yeah like someone had to swoop in to save the other person who would do the swooping in basically and as far as I'm concerned it would be Ray. and my thinking for that is tied back to an earlier part of the myth that we discussed where in an, in a reversal of what goes on in the Cupid and Psyche story isn't Eros who leaves Psyche it as in Kylo doesn't leave Rey Rey leaves Kylo basically so she initiates the separation between them whereas that was left to Cupid in the myth yeah so in line with that subversion I think it only really makes sense to have it be Rey the person who comes back to save Kylo basically I think it would be a bit messy and inconsistent if it were the other way around. And it also has troubling implications, I guess, that would 
inevitably lead to many like hot takes so yeah what's your thought on that Kirsty? <laughs> I think my main issue with that would be that it would feel uh almost too similar to how things go down in the throne room mm. where it's all about Kylo's choices to save Rey um yeah. so yeah I think it's time for things to be the other way around yep agreed and also for the sake of Kylo's redemption if that's presumably what's happening at this stage which we I think we both believe would be happening at this stage. Um, Kylo (laughs) would have to be in some serious danger. Yeah. It needs to be as much about his Nadir as the Nadir for Rey, basically. And yeah, it's going to take a lot for people to buy into redemption for that character. So it wouldn't surprise me if he has to give all of himself, basically. And then, yeah, good stuff happens. So, yeah, we're just saying prepare for pain, people. It's not going to be very nice. Well, I think it'll be great. But... Oh, yeah, no, no. I think it will be great. But, you know, when it's happening, it's that awful, awful feeling. Because it's like watching The Last Jedi. It was such an emotional roller coaster. Because, like, you've got that Cloud Nine Nirvana of all the Force Bond stuff, especially the hut scene with the touching hands and stuff. Yeah, but it's that in reverse for the third act, so it's okay. Yeah, yeah. No, it will be okay. It will be okay. (laughs) You're going to suffer, but you're going to be happy about it. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be so much fun. Um, Okay, cool. And then we have the ending, which I guess will be the Ewok scene of... um, (laughs) The Ewok village scene, I should be clear, because there's many Ewok scenes and all of them are celebratory. Some are dark, serious shit. Um, But yep the final part of the myth Cupid then takes his case to Zeus who gives his consent in return for Cupid's future help whenever a choice maiden catches his eye oh Zeus you're insufferable Um, Zeus has Hermes convene an assembly of the gods in the theatre of heaven where he makes a public statement of approval warns Venus to back off and gives Psyche ambrosia the drink of immortality so the couple can be united in marriage as equals. Their union, he says, will redeem Cupid from his history of provoking adultery and sordid liaisons. Mm. <laughs> I'm sure that will have direct parallel <laughs> in the rise of Skywalker. Um, Zeus's word is solemnized with a wedding banquet. Okay, and what is Johnson's hot take on how it ends, Kirsty? Psyche's contact with Eros has been difficult and dangerous, but it finally brings immortality to Psyche herself. It was Psyche's work which translated the naive beauty promised at first into the conscious goddesshood accomplished at the end of the story. So she earns her place, basically. Yeah, she earns her place. It's a happy ending. And yeah, for me, the key takeaways from this are that some sort of divine help from a higher level is sought to make this union possible force ghosts yeah Yeah, exactly (laughs) we're on the same wavelength shock we do a podcast together on the same same wavelength um we don't even have that in the notes though that's funny like (laughs) yeah like again psychic powers twinsies (laughs) um but yeah that would parallel to force ghosts because they are basically the divine intervention of the star wars saga so if there is going to be any intervention to help like the lovers or the counterparts or the couple or however you like to describe them um, in The Rise of Skywalker then yeah, it's going to be Force Ghosts basically. Nothing else makes sense to me. Um, 
and yeah I love that idea of them being united in marriage as equals that is incredibly important and yeah I think any union between Ray and Kylo it's gonna have to be very firmly about making that point about being on equal footing and being completely on a level with one another yeah and of course to be clear we don't mean that necessarily they're literally getting married at the end of the story (laughs) yes oh my god (laughs) yes force ghost luke officiated (laughs) dearly beloved (laughs) sorry um i think about that quote we had last time about the whole levels and about this idea of psyche being thrown between different levels and having to reconcile the different extremes of what she experiences and yeah like I think we see that a lot with Rey because we see these drastic shifts in her level of power in any given situation going from the most powerless situation imaginable to the most powerful imaginable and then back again like a yo-yo and at the end there's going to have to be some sort of stability for her and yeah I think whatever that stability winds up being I think it's going to be on a level with Kylo and inequality with him yeah and since we were talking about Jane Eyre last week as well it's clear in how Jane returns to Rochester in Act 3 that she's returning as his equal yeah exactly she's financially independent she's like a strong woman and she's found her own path and discovered herself and yeah and Rochester get together on the right terms. So yeah, it's another great example of this type of story. Um, yeah, so just to round things off, I have found a great quote from Eric Newman, who's yet another Jungian analyst with interesting, pretty words to say. And yeah, like this was my final contribution. Kirsty has loads more great quotes, so she might want to bring in some of those. Um, but yeah, this is where I'd like to round off the whole thing of the myth and what I might be saying with her redemption by Eros Psyche has completed her four labours and thus accomplished the initiate's journey through the four elements but it is characteristic that the feminine Psyche must not simply travel through the elements she must make them her own through her acts and assimilate them as the helpful sources of her nature the ants that belong to the earth the reed that belongs to the water, Zeus's eagle of the air, and finally the fiery celestial figure of the redeeming Eros himself. In the myth, Psyche is so active that all actions and transformations start with her. She performs the decisive action while Eros sleeps, and completes her labours while Eros lies wounded in his mother's house. She, the earthborn woman, succeeds in integrating the four earthly elements of her nature, and so and succeeds in integrating all the intrigues of the unconscious and its goddess. So great is Psyche's inner strength, so great is her power of integration, acquired through suffering and love, that she can stand up to the disintegrating power of the archetypes and confront them on an equal footing. Yet all this does not occur in a Promethean masculine opposition to the divine, but in a divine erotic seas of love. So, yeah. I thought that was beautifully stated and yeah I liked this whole emphasis on the fact that she succeeds through very feminine means of reconciliation and consolidating all these different parts of herself and all these different aspects into this whole being and it's not about like showing force or being aggressive it's 
about love and compassion, which, yeah, is very Star Wars to me. Mm-hmm. In terms of that contrast between Psyche's action and Eros sleeping and hanging out at his mum's house and stuff, <laughs> yes. uh, I do feel like we see that quite clearly in The Last Jedi when Rey is on Act 2 and we keep cutting back to Kylo on the Star Destroyer or wherever he is, kind of mm. just hanging out and reflecting and you know being in his quarters and surveying things and being generally very passive and quiet. Yeah. Um, which definitely contrasts with how we see Kylo first in The Force Awakens and then the end of The Last Jedi when he kind of comes out more into the natural elements. Um, so yeah, that's something else to think about. Yeah, no, that's really true. And again, that fits in with that whole idea of in The Last Jedi, those Force Bond scenes, Kylo is very much representing the animus for Rey. And yeah like that's quite a powerful evocation of that idea and that dynamic Mm -hmm. um so i have some more quotes from marie louise on franz um the kind of summing up this kind of story in general but also some things that i felt like paralleled with well aspects of the original trilogy i thought quite interesting Mm -hmm. um she says women cannot fight the animus by killing him the male hero in myths fights overcomes conquers the monster The feminine follows the path of individuation by suffering and escaping. It is enough if a woman can walk out into the human situation, rebuild human relatedness, relationship. I think this is really interesting because it kind of highlights how subversive Luke's story was. Mm, Yeah. Because, of course, if we do think of the typical male hero in a myth, he is fighting and slaying a monster, right? Yeah. But, But Luke actually has something closer to a feminine journey in terms of learning to love and accept Vader. Um, which I think is still is still different from Rey's in terms of the dynamics and um, how Luke then goes on after that and handles things. But, um, I don't know, he has an intriguing mix of hero and heroine's journey. Yeah, no, he really does. And yeah, that's what made him such an iconic character, I think, in that movie. Um. And then coming back to how the end of the story will have implications for the wider saga, um, because in the sequel trilogy, especially in The Last Jedi, when Luke was talking about the history of the Jedi and everything, and um, obviously we had those bits from Snoke in the The Last Jedi novelization as well, there's clearly this theme of, okay, so the past, they mess things up, how do we move forward? Mm. Um, and of course that's the major theme of Kylo's arc too in terms of just letting it all die rather than taking the good bits and moving forward in a healthy way which Rey tries to do Um, when a woman overcomes her animus problems then she will belong to the new spirit of her time taking part in it and even bringing it about women in general have this tendency to take up new ideas, new movements because their mind, the animus in them is less bound by tradition so I think this is a really interesting indication of where things might go for Rey and Kylo, depending on how it's executed, um, in terms of how the philosophy of the Force will evolve for them and what Jedi will mean going forward. Yeah. That's a really good parallel to draw, actually, because, yeah, I do love the weight that's given to Rey as a character. And how, while she does have this very personal, very emotionally charged story, is one with these huge ramifications and these lingering effects. So, yeah, the way they've built up Rey and constructed that character, it makes me 
like really excited for the storytelling that's going to happen post the sequel trilogy to see that impact that she's had enacted like through the years basically mm-hmm. so i think we're going to see some really interesting mystical force elements in the rise of skywalker and what implications they might have for Rey and Kylo's understanding of the Force. I love the idea of them discovering new things together. Yeah, no, 100%. Uh, and when you were reading out that quote, actually, and that whole idea of, like, s- sorting things and, like, the past and the present and what Rey represents, it did take me back to that early, like, part that we were talking about with the myth, mm, where there's yeah. the ants. And that whole idea of having to sort the seeds and what that might mean. So I think a really cool way in which they could realise that in The Rise of Skywalker is to show Rey like, looking through the Jedi texts or something and having to make decisions about how much of this learning is actually useful now, how much of this can be taken forward and applied and what should be left behind. So that would be a really cool way to show that sorting process in a way that's kind of literal so could be illustrated cinematically but it also has these like deeper and more profound implications than just like some sort of like fetch quest or like puzzle or something Mm -hmm. definitely um and kind of wanting to connect cupid and psyche to um other versions of beauty and the beast or just kind of emphasizing that kind of family of fairy tales and how it can relate to the sequel trilogy. Um, I was re-reading Marina Warner's book from The Beast of the Blonde last night. Oh, awesome. I love that book. Yeah. So there were little bits, especially in the Beauty and the Beast section, obviously, that were kind of popping out to me in terms of why these kind of stories continue to resonate, um, as well as the book that I recommended earlier by Maria Tatar. Um, in popular versions, Beauty and the Beast offers a lesson in female yielding and its satisfactions. The Beast serves desire. Beauty responds from some deep inner need which he awakens. The Beast, formerly the stigmatizing envelope of the fallen male, has become a badge of the salvation he offers. Beauty used to grapple with the material and emotional difficulties of matrimony for young women. Now she tends to personify female erotic pleasures. In matching and mastering a man who is dark and hairy, rough and wild, <laughs> and in the psychotherapist Robert Bly's phrase, in touch with the inner warrior in himself. In her encounter with the beast, the female protagonist meets her match, in more ways than one. If she defeats him or even kills him, if she outwits him, banishes or forsakes him, or accepts him and loves him, she arrives at some knowledge she did not possess. His existence and the challenge he offers is necessary before she can grasp it. The ancient tale of Cupid and Psyche told of their love. Apart from the child pleasure whom Psyche bore, their other descendants, the tales in the Beauty and the Beast group, number among the most eloquent testaments to women's struggles against arranged marriage and towards a definition of the place of sexuality in love. The enchantments and disenchantments of the Beast have been a rich resource in stories women have made up among themselves to help, to teach, to warn. Such a good quote. Yeah, I think that just sums it up really well because these are stories that have evolved with the times. So yeah, you can look at Beauty and the Beast in terms of, okay, how are we going to help these women who are being forced into arranged marriages? How can we guide them? Um, but obviously that is not what the sequel trilogy is about. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> but it's it's an evolution of it. It's something that resonates with our time. 
um, because we see Rey as the awesome action hero that she is, and we also see the vulnerabilities that we've talked about and why we appreciate those so much, um, and the contrast with the Beast, who in his own way mirrors his time, as all decent antagonists should. Yeah, no, exactly. It's that whole idea of being both timely and timeless, because it does speak to these like eternal conditions and these really profound themes and ideas and emotional truths that will probably remain true as long as humans exist basically about like love and the interrelationships between human beings but yeah you're absolutely right that each telling of this type of story it's so much informed by the time in which the story is being told and yeah the sequel trilogy it's attracted this deeply passionate and engaged audience precisely because it does speak to people in such a profound and deep way and yeah it speaks to 21st century women and I think that's wonderful because it is crafting this modern myth and it feels like an authentic myth it's not like a modern myth in the way that Shrek is a modern fairy tale Um, (laughs) this is not cynical and it's not self-aware it's very sincere and earnest in what it's trying to be and yeah I love that because I think it's pulling it off with a plum and I think it's hugely successful me too Right, so let's wrap things up there. So I'm Rachel. You can find me at Star Wars Nonsense on Tumblr and at Journal of the Star Wars on WordPress. Where can people find you, Kirsty? I'm Bastilla Bay on Tumblr and Scavengers Horde on Twitter. Oh, and you can also email us at scavengershorde at gmail.com. Yeah, and please do. We keep on begging every time. And we <laughs> really, really want people to write in. We love your thoughts. So, yeah, thanks, guys. Um, yeah, so that said, thank you and until next time, bye! Bye!